Well, you'll likely remember in January, we were talking about a dog by the name of Punky. Punky was destroyed after a lengthy legal battle. And the battle has raised a lot of questions about aggressive dogs, about dangerous dogs, and the best way to deal with situations where, and in this case, it was a dog that, yes, had bit somebody at a park in Vancouver. But it does raise a lot of questions about how to best deal with dogs with issues like this. Does it mean an automatic death sentence or are there other avenues? And has this court decision caused a big change as far as how dogs will be dealt with in the future? Well, a new motion is going to be coming forward to Vancouver City Council. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is V. Victoria Schroff, an animal law lawyer, also an adjunct professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC, and Dr. Chris Armstrong, who's a veterinarian, and both are on the line with me now. Good morning to both of you. Good Good morning. And thanks so much for being here. I think this is a very important issue, especially for people who have dogs, people who are fearful of dogs, and to get some clarification. So, uh, Victoria, I'd like to start with you because you flagged this to me that this motion was coming to Vancouver City Council. Uh, what are some of your concerns as far as where we stand now following that court decision, the, the destroying of Punky, and where we are now when it comes to dangerous dogs? So, I mean, firstly, I'd just like to say, Jill, that I'm not against the draft motion put forth by councillors Fry and Weeb, but far from it. Um, I see myself as very much an ally, and I see vets as an ally to help keep dogs alive, and while we're also managing public safety. So I think the spirit of the motion is quite good, but it needs some specific amendments to make it better for Vancouver dogs and the public alike. So as the public looks for viable tools um, for how to keep their if they have an aggressive dog or a dog that's been deemed dangerous, how these cases get processed is really near and dear to my heart. And so walk us through if you can, because it's, it's a rather lengthy motion, but a few of the, couple yeah. of the things that stand out for me are uh, when it comes to the Vancouver Charter, because Vancouver is different in that it has the charter, uh, which is different from other municipalities and cities, uh, but it deals with the designation of dangerous dog and whether or not that's a death sentence. Is that something that needs to be clarified, do you think, in the motion? Well, I think it does, but I'll tell you where I think the clarification will actually come in. I think the motion only refers to animal behaviorists, and it does not reference veterinarians as being in a position to modify the behavior of dangerous dogs and to be able to diagnose and treat dangerous dogs. The consultation with the city um, animal control officer, which is what this bylaw would propose, would be with um, animal behaviorists, and it doesn't even mention consulting with a veterinarian. And I think that needs to be amended. So that's that's sort of the angle that um, we were talking about um, today, I think, really, that, um, you know, so I I just need to be clear at the outset, I'm not representing or acting for vets or behaviorists. I'm speaking up for the dogs and their guardians, their custodians. And, you know, I say this is a long term a Vancouver animal law lawyer, and um, I'm also uh, I also live in Vancouver. So I do I do like the intent of the bylaw, but it needs this bylaw to include vets who are very well qualified to give opinions on diagnosis and treatment of animals, uh, both medically and for animal behavior. Um, because you have to bear in mind, and I'm going to obviously yield to Dr. Chris on this, it's, you know, there's a, sometimes a medical reason why a dog is behaving in an aggressive manner. And um, 
you know, there, there are documents out there that make it clear that you need to start talking with your vet. There's a document that the Attorney General, for example, the Ministry of the Attorney General has a document called Any Dog Can Be Aggressive. I found this online, and the first thing it says is steps to take if your dog shows signs of inappropriate aggression. First, talk to your veterinarian. I'm right. flagging that as something that I think is relevant. And, of course, this is where we, you know, Dr. Chris Armstrong can talk about that way more than I can. Well, let's bring in uh, Dr. Armstrong because that is part of this resolution where it says prior to the final de- determination of an aggressive dog by authorized city official, a qualified animal behaviorist should be consulted to provide an opinion on whether the dog is aggressive. And, and I've, I've got to agree with, with Victoria there. Is that not something a veterinarian could do? Yeah, I guess I, you know, here's a case where I agree 100% with with Victoria on what she's saying. Um, I think almost in every case where the word animal behaviorist is mentioned, it really should be replaced with, you know, and if you're going to, you know, quantify it with qualified, but a qualified veterinarian. Um, Veterinarians really, really should be at the forefront of of this uh, uh, motion and this bylaw. I mean, truly veterinarians are are the only professional um, and profession that is truly licensed and qualified to assess, diagnose, and treat dogs or animals with behavioral problems. Um, and, I, and I truly think it's, it's particularly true for those um, dogs with underlying medical problems. I mean, this could involve a, a pain issue, a hormonal issue, a, a neurological disease, and, and certainly even in these complex cases where maybe a, an underlying medical problem is not um, the issue, um, they're often complex and required prescription medications. And the only one who's you know, licensed, able, and qualified to, to prescribe medications is, of course, veterinarians. So, so they, they've got to be in there. They've got to be you know, listed first, not, not second. Right. And, and I, I think for a lot of people, the question is, too, what is an, an animal behaviorist? I mean, I read this and I thought, does this mean Cesar Milan has to uh, go and, <laughs> and uh, go and talk to and look at every dog? Or I mean, what, is, what even is, what does it take to become an animal behaviorist? Well, I, I, I think that's the big question because there's many definitions and many qualifications. Um, that's where it goes back to a veterinarian. Veterinarians are qualified all the same way. They're licensed all the same way. They're, they're trained and educated in, in medical and animal um, you know, conditions and treatment of, of man- medical conditions and, and behavioral conditions. So, you know, it really should go, go down to veterinarians. Um, I would certainly say that, um, you know, for myself included, um, we deal with and talk to, to owners on behavioral problems um, on, a, on a daily basis. So, so it's not like we're not used to talking about behavioral issues. Um, we often start at the beginning, which, which is important to be proactive, um, to try and make sure that, that puppies and kittens, you know, end up having, um, you know, the, the growth and, and the socialization that provides them with, with the right tools, as it were, uh, to become a happy pet and to become, you know, an animal that, that's going to be welcomed in, into homes and into society. So, so it has to be veterinarians. Um, a behaviorist, I'm not sure what the t- definition is, and there's various qualifications of them. Absolutely. Uh, Victoria, I'll bring you back in. The, the fact that we're even having this conversation, is it because of the court case with Punky and because of the Vancouver Charter? Is there a gray area now on, on what exactly the designation is and, and the, what happens when a dog is deemed dangerous? I, th- I think there is to some extent, but I also think that there always was a gray area. Um, while conditional orders were, were fairly routine in the cases that I did, um, over, you know, I've litigated so-called dangerous dog cases for 20 plus years. 
And, um, you know, we were able to get conditional orders for several dogs, but not always. It wasn't it wasn't a given. So that was in terms of what the court could order and the court couldn't order. Well, now the Court of Appeal has said, look, we're clarifying the law. We now have this chance after 15 years of this case law to clarify it. And we're actually saying, you know what, that that wasn't uh, that wasn't kind of good law without actually using those words. What they said was that, you know, Provincial court judges cannot do conditional orders, but the judgment also clearly says that it doesn't take away from the fact that animal control officers can craft remedies with the dog custodian or or owner to keep, you know, dogs away from this process of facing a destruction order. And and here's where I think that, again, I mean, I I like this uh, motion spirit and intent. And I don't think it needs a lot of tweaking. Um, but I do think after you've heard the um, statement from Dr. Armstrong, that you can see that, you know, vets are the animal experts here as well. It's not to say animal behaviors are not helpful. They absolutely are. I use them as well. But in the cases that I do, I also use vets. Um, they understand all aspects of dogs and they understand what the first line of treatment is going to be for dogs. They're also there if it comes down to euthanasia. It's going to be a vet who has to be involved. And with the vet seeing your dog regularly, who knows your dog better? This is, this is where I come from. And I think to myself, well, who knows your dog other than your vet? Like right. for all these years. And, and um, you know, I think that's, that's really, really important. It's your family doctor for your, for your animal. And that's why I go to a vet for guidance. Um, and again, I'm not saying anything about behaviors being unhelpful. They are helpful, depending on um, the angle that they're coming from. But they definitely can't prescribe drugs. And I would feel much more comfortable hearing what a vet had to say with the diagnosis. So we have, I think, a very few um, veterinary behaviorists. So there's actually this double specialty that I'm going to um, say for Dr. Armstrong to elucidate on. But I believe we only have one or two of those people, if I'm not mistaken. Right. In the province, we've only got about about thirty seconds left. So, so if Dr. Armstrong, you could that that does seem like like something that would add to this motion or be helpful. Yeah, I, I guess part of it comes down to numbers, and and there is only there is something called the board certification, American College of of uh, uh, veterinary behaviorists. Um, there is there's I believe only one person who's who's um, nearly got her board certification onto it. So that only leaves leaves a small number. But I I think truly it. Um, you know, when it comes down to veterinarians, there's there's really hundreds of us that are are um, within the Lower Mainlands as as resources. Um, some of us certainly have um, a special interest in behavior, and therefore, you know, perhaps have got um, further training or better further training. And I think it's a matter of reaching out or the public reaching out to to those veterinarians who who have the ability and the interest to to deal with a behavioral case. Um, I think the thing that that uh, Victoria touched on is is in order to be able to treat these dogs, it's a collaborative approach, All and right. that means the animals involved, the dog has to be taken in, into consideration. The owner has to have the dedication and the time, not just the dedication, but the time. This is not a quick fix in many cases. Uh, the veterinarian has to be involved. I mean, we're the ones in the forefront who who look at the animals, deal with the animals, have been trained, um, you know, medically um, to 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 deal with these, and of course, you know, do 
behaviorists and trainers come in. Absolutely, they do. All right. You know, it's We're going to have to, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but we are going to have to leave it there. We're right out of time. My thanks to both of you. Well, there has been a lot of talk during the past few days about the idea of perhaps hosting the 2030 Games back in Vancouver. I actually saw Julie Payette, the Governor General of Canada, yesterday at another event. She's on board. Uh, not a surprise there, being so entrenched in the sporting world as she is. Uh, so are a lot of people. However, it's not unanimous. Some saying, well, wait a minute, do we really need to be throwing another huge party when we still don't know the full cost of the 2010 Games? Well, let's bring in Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young and uh, get her take on this idea. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us again. Good morning. Good morning to you. What do you think about this? Or when you first heard uh, there was this push to maybe host the 2030 Games uh, back in Vancouver again? I think that it's important to dare to dream, and I'll provide some context on that. I, In my past life, prior to being a city councillor recently, I was the director of marketing for tourism in Vancouver, um, and I worked with people who were really great at bringing big ideas forward, and one of them was the idea that Vancouver bid for the 2010 Games. And at that time, Tourism Vancouver put up $100,000 towards forming a nonprofit society together with Tourism Whistler and Sport BC, to explore that idea and move it forward. So it really was a grassroots idea. Um, and whether it was that or expanding the convention center um, or a number of different sort of different ideas, should we have high-speed rail um, between here and Seattle? These are the kind of ideas that we need to think about as cities in terms of how we grow and shape our future. So whether we have it or not, it's really important that we have this conversation. Right, because when we look at things like that, like the Canada Line, and anybody that uses the Canada Line would probably say it's a great addition to our transit system. Uh, We got that because we were getting the 2010 Games as well as uh, various venues and that. But I guess the question is, do we need to have another Games uh, in Vancouver, especially since at this point we don't know the full cost of the 2010 Games? Well, I think what we need to do is we can be informed by history. And Vanock did what's generally regarded as one of the best jobs in terms of a sustainable legacy for the Games. And, and that means the infrastructure that was left behind. So some of those projects you mentioned were envisioned before the Games, but they didn't get funded. So the Can Line, for example, um, that was envisioned by governments, but they turned their attention to the Millennium Line. Things like the airport um, upgrades. Um, we have a beautiful airport now, rated one of the best in the world. Um, look at the Sea to Sky Highway improvements or the Convention Center expansion. All of those projects got a catalyst and a boost because when you have a major event like this, it tends to rally everybody. It tends to sort of engender that investment and that support. Um, and those are legacy working pieces. We also had a great history as the city of Vancouver in having venues that were actually utilized um, after the Games. And that was intentional planning. So things like Hillcrest Community Center, but they, these wouldn't remain um, unused. These were part of our urban fabric, and that's one of the most heavily used uh, destination pool facilities and ice rinks today that we have throughout the city. So I think that we did a really good job in terms of sustainable legacy. The other thing to note is that in 2014, um, the Olympic Organizing Committee introduced new guidelines about sustainability that, and allow cities to use infrastructure they already have. And that's why Vancouver is quite well positioned to host another mm-hmm. Winter Olympics, which means, I think that we could transfer our attention to creating a legacy if we host another game to things like housing. And, and what would that look like? Because that is one of the concerns that uh, affordability became an issue after the 2010 games or, or certainly that accelerated and that we do have these issues when it comes to housing and so many other social issues facing us right now. 
Well, I, I see several. I see several opportunities related to housing because the, the uh, host city, if, if they're successful in winning a bid, is required to provide the athlete village around five thousand units. And you think of where could that be in the city? Um, so I think about the uh, work with our First Nations partners, who were a really important part of the 2010 bid. And you have large stream um, developments that are being contemplated right now, such as on the Jericho lands or at the RCMP, old RCMP Heaven lands. Um, those haven't been built out yet. And looking at the timing, that would be really interesting to work with the First Nations partners and perhaps have an Olympic village on those sites um, and to work with them and secure additional government investment so that those could become truly social housing um, after the games and a social housing legacy, or they could help with the uh, development and support our First Nations partners as part of our reconciliation work. Uh, ABC is another option too. also that uh, you can certainly, um, they have a track record in building housing. They can certainly look at the offshoot of an athlete's village there. Um, And the other thing that I think in terms of a major legacy and infrastructure project is that the extension of the Broadway subway from Arbutus to UBC although it's been supported um, by Vancouver City Council and by um, the Mayor's Council, it's not funded yet. Um, this could be a catalyst potentially to secure funding to complete that subway line. Why do you think, though, if these are things that we need and that are priorities for this city, why does it take uh, an Olympic Games to get them done? It sometimes takes that, that spirit and passion or that impetus to rally people. It creates a deadline uh, because when you're hosting the Games, that, that date is coming no matter what. It's normally seven years out that uh, this bid city is selected. So for 2030, for example, um, if Vancouver decided to do it, they would know by 2023. Um, and uh, that puts a deadline and it tends to, to make things happen because they just have to be completed. Uh, is there a concern at all, like you said, the legacy of the 2010 Games people, and we've been talking about it now because it is the 10-year anniversary, people remember it, for the most part, what I've been hearing, people have been remembering it fondly and uh, talking about what a great legacy it had. Is there a concern if we try and do it again 20 years later, we could ruin that legacy? Oh, you mean kind of like you you know, you know, have an amazing first date and it's never the same? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, I, I think it would. I think it would be different. I think it's an opportunity to create something differently. I, I think that games are going. You're going to see more cities that are going to bid again because of the change in the IOC guidelines that you can reuse infrastructure um, and use it more sustainably. And I, I think that that's a good thing. Um, I think we've learned a lot about housing. I think there's protections in place now in terms of speculation tax and foreign ownership. Um, and I would really like to see a conversation around a housing legacy on this one. Um, that to me would be a win to move forward but ultimately the community has to want it and one of the things that I had the uh, I was tasked with doing at Tours in Vancouver is when it was decided to host a plebiscite um, leading up to the Olympic Games and our bid committee was really busy on going out to the international bid just to try to win it Um, and so we stood up and supported on helping with that strategy and I did focus groups and you know we got the word out and encouraged Vancouverites to get out and have their say got a 64% yes vote for that that said we wanted to host the Games um, which was one of the highest voter turnouts we've had in the city, higher, sadly, than when people go vote in our municipal elections. Um, but I think it does need to be grassroots and it does need to have the support of the citizens behind it. All right. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. I wanted to ask you one other question uh, just before I let you go. And it's kind of related in that we're talking about housing. Uh, you've also brought forward a motion or you're talking about uh, getting rid of some very racist language. I know West Vancouver has been talking about this as well. Uh, where does that stand as far as or how did how did that come about uh, with this motion? Uh, it came about, I was I followed with interest that it came forward, first of all, in West Vancouver from Councillor Marcus Wong. Um, and he brought it forward because the British properties um, in West Van is one area that was particularly targeted by this, where it has covenants that said, 
no um, Asiatic um, Negro or Indian person, and I mean, this is not my language, this is language of the land covenants, may be permitted to own or, or, or um, habitate um, on, these, on these lands. Um, and that's really, really hurtful. And it happened in Vancouver as well, and there's instances of those land titles there. So if somebody is going, in short, to buy a house, um, and that property's been around for a while, um, that language still exists on a, on a land title. And while it's legally void, um, so people can purchase those homestays, it's a really hurtful practice. Um, and we've been really strong in Vancouver trying to apologize officially to our Chinese community and work with our South Asian community on retaining heritage in the Punjabi market. And it just is something that seems really wrong um, and ca- causing ha- pain for people. And so I want to bring it forward to council so that we can see what we can do about it. Absolutely. Would it be a matter of, though, because I know it's difficult to change a land title, how would that work? Would it be issuing a new one or an addendum to it? Well, there's there's a few ways. And part of the motion calls to sort of work with the academic community and talk about it because we do need to, you know, we, we can't erase our history. You know, we, we have to be informed by it. And we don't, you know, try to erase the, the horrible doing things that happened during the Holocaust, for example. Um, but you can strike those covenants and you can do that on a voluntary basis. Now, it's not uh, it's not systematically done across the system. Um, a lot of it exists on microfiche. Um, there will be a move to electric, uh, electronic um, storage of all those records. So there may be opportunities as those processes happen um, to sort of more across the board strike some of those covenants out. But imagine what it feels like if you're buying a house and you have a land title deal and uh, you're of one of those heritages and that's what you see. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, we will wait and see what happens with that as well. Uh, Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thank you so much for joining us this morning. No worries. Have a great day. Well, let's bring in Michael Geller, SFU Adjunct Professor for Sustainable Development, also developer, architect, you name it. Uh, Michael, so great to have you back on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, what do you think about I first want to ask you, um, if you saw the story, and I'm sure you're familiar with Brent uh, Totterin, he uh, went very public with his story this past week about uh, moving next door to Crosstown Elementary. His child did not get into the school, along with a lot of other parents. Uh, the story is not unique. Uh, but from that story, a lot of finger pointing. People were pointing at the city, at the school board, at the province. Where do you think things fell apart in that we have all of these families now that have kids that can't go to, in many cases, a school they can see. There was just terrible communication and a level of cooperation between the City of Vancouver Planning Department that created these new communities very successfully, required developers to build family housing, bedrooms with suitable number of bedrooms and so forth, but then could not get the school board and the province, Ministry of Education, on board to create the schools in time. And the sad irony for me, because I'm old, I remember the 1970s when we did the South Shore of False Creek, and there the school was built as part of the first housing developments. In fact, people who are familiar with False Creek South know the school almost looks a bit like one of the co-ops with the red roofs and so forth. In Toronto, where I worked on the St. Lawrence project, we actually built the school as part of the very first phase and put six floors of housing above it. But unfortunately, in neither in Coal Harbor nor in False Creek in recent years, has there been that level of collaboration? And that's why we have this, I think, very unfortunate situation. I'm so pleased that Brent spoke out about it. Because it seems like, and Brent said this, he said the city actually did it right. They 
put the land aside. They made the land available to the school board to build the school. Uh, Crosstown was even supposed to be a smaller school than it is now, and it was a fourth floor was added. It's full, three years after being built, it's full. Uh, There's no school in Olympic Village. All the school board is saying right now is that Olympic Village and Coal Harbor are both on the priority list, but there's no timeline, which seems ridiculous given, like you said, they're building these communities and are being very successful in having families living downtown. So the reason that I uh, agreed to speak uh, to you about this today is not necessarily to try and figure out who is to blame, but in an effort to try and ensure that as we build more new communities and subdivisions around the region, we try to prevent this problem. A number of years ago, I was working in a new community in Maple Ridge, and I must admit I was very troubled as a planner. Here we were proposing a whole new community there was not only no school, there, were no, there was no public transportation, and we, sh- we know that we shouldn't be doing this, and yet we continue to do it. So I'm just hoping now that this discussion will cause people to take a look, not just at Falls Creek and Cole Harbor, but everywhere in, in Surrey and in Langley and throughout the region where we are continuing to build schools. When I worked at SFU, we knew it was very important to get an elementary school as part of that community. And when I went and spoke to some of the university administrators, they said to me, don't be too optimistic. You're going to discover that school board officials want to see, and I remember the expression, they want to see the whites of the children's eyes before they'll even consider building the, starting to build the school It's crazy. It's just crazy. Right. And that came up in this discussion this week, too, in that there's there's not a lot of being nimble or creative when it comes to particularly urban schools where land is is very much an issue, because unlike the suburbs where you can put portables, which isn't perfect, but at least you have the option of doing that. You can't really do that in the downtown core. Well, you actually could. I mean, we're seeing that with the modular housing that you could create a modular school in um, China, we saw them building a modular hospital. So you could do it, but you have to make sure that you have, as you say, the adequate land area to create the modular building while you're building the permanent facility. But that could be done. Is it a matter, too, when you said poor communication, that 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 needs to improve? Because it's not as though, I mean, there are schools in Vancouver that are at 50% capacity, or in some cases, I think even less. Uh, The school board, I don't think, really cares if if, if somebody is driving their kids across to go to that school. It saves them from having to have the conversation about shutting it down. Uh, But it seems like we do have to have better conversation or better communication on the best ways for people to live and for communities to thrive. That's right. And the one thing that I do hope will come out of this conversation is to say, let's now start building a lot more family-oriented housing around those existing schools that have empty classrooms, because there are opportunities there to to create higher-density, family-oriented development, because you don't have to build schools. So let's make better use of the schools we already have. And is that something that might come into play? I'm thinking of the Oak Ridge development. That's going to be a huge area with a ton more housing built in that in that proposal. Yes, well, I'm not familiar with the, with the status there, but I wouldn't be surprised, given the changing demographics in the Oak Ridge area, that you do have schools that could be uh, made better use of.
Uh, do you Without think a doubt. Uh, Sarah Kirby Young said that if there was something, and I realize it's all hypothetical at this point on hosting a 2030 Olympic Games, uh, would it be something, do you think, I mean, the Olympic Village from the 2010 Games isn't exactly a champion for social housing. Uh, is it something where there would be the opportunity to have a housing legacy? Well, I think that's what many people would hope. And uh, I must admit, when I was first uh, asked to comment on this, two thoughts went through my mind. The first was all the reasons why it would be a good idea to go after the 2030 Olympics. And then I thought of all the reasons why it would be a bad idea to go after the Olympics. Um, and certainly the, Olympic, the creation of the housing, it, to my mind, would be a significant consideration. But there is a, an, a legacy in Toronto that's worth looking at. You know, Toronto hosted, without as much publicity in in Vancouver, the Pan Am Games a number of years ago. And the planners of that community development came to Vancouver, carefully studied what went right and what went wrong at the Olympic Village, and generally speaking, were able to, to successfully house the athletes for the Pan Am Games and create a social housing legacy. So there's no doubt we, could, we, will, we will learn uh, a great deal from, from the Olympics uh, the last time round that could be applied to, to any future decision. Um, but I don't personally think that that should be the main factor in deciding whether or not the public wants to support uh, another bid for the Olympics. There are quite a few other things as well that have to be taken into consideration. Absolutely. Uh, We'll have to have that conversation another day, though. We are right out of time. But Michael Geller, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we've talked about this before, the issue of violence in the workplace, specifically talking about in medical facilities where nurses, often the front lines of healthcare, face violence on a daily basis. We've heard from the Nurses Union about the number of nurses that have to go on disability, that have to take time off from work after they experience violence while on the job. Well, a new study that has been published in the journal Nursing Open and comes to us out of UBC shows that there is a direct link between complaints made by patients and violence towards nurses. So let's bring in Faranaz Hawaii, a UBC School of Nursing assistant professor, to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Joe. What exactly was this study looking at as far as violence and the complaints that are made by patients? Um, so this study essentially is a province-wide study of British Columbia medical surgical nurses um, um, with data that were collected in 2015, looking at the impact of heavy nurse workloads at multiple levels and patient and family complaints on workplace violence towards nurses. And so what this study essentially found is that when nurses are overworked and unable to provide a really high standard of care for their patients, the type of care that patients and families essentially deserve, um, you know, they're able to detect that and they get frustrated by that. And so because of being, um, you know, overworked and having um, um, heavy workloads around them, nurses are not really able to attend to these patient complaints. And um, uh, what we see is that these complaints then sort of escalate into aggression and violence towards nurses, unfortunately. And and was there any uh, um, similarity in the complaints themselves or what they were based on? Was it, uh, you know, like, 
was there anything? Was it medication? Was it cleanliness? Was it just just attending when you push the button for a nurse to come to the bedside? So we actually just asked nurses. We didn't really differentiate between um, um, the types of complaints, but we just asked nurses how frequently do you typically get complaints from patients and their families. Okay. And the type of abuse then, because we have talked about this in the past, whether it's verbally uh, being yelled at or being uh, having swear words thrown at you. Uh, I mean, there's that type of abuse. There's also, unfortunately, uh, we hear of many reports of physical abuse. Did there Was there a difference or did it show kind of an escalation in what nurses would be facing? So what we essentially looked at in this study, we differentiated violence into physical violence and emotional violence. And um, so physical violence, as you said, refers to things like um, using physical force to um, essentially physical force that results in some sort of like physical or psychological harm. So things like physical assault, being kicked, punched, objects thrown at you. And emotional violence, on the other hand, um, refers to the use of non-physical force and power, um, which essentially results in primarily psychological harm. So examples include like threats of assault, being verbally abused, being shouted at, um, uh, using foul language and that type of behavior. And so both um, 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 heavy heavy workloads and um, patient and family complaints were related to both types of workplace violence um, with higher um, sort of relationship or a stronger relationship between um, um, workload and complaints and emotional violence. Uh, were you surprised at all by that finding in that I think people generally think people can lose your cool, you can maybe say something that you can take back after or that you apologize for, but it seems like there's a big difference from being verbally uh, abusive or aggressive to actually striking somebody. Mm-hmm. So I actually, I, I must say that I wasn't really surprised by the findings. It actually makes sense to me because if you think about it, it's the repetition in the complaints. You know, you're in a vulnerable situation. You're in the hospital requiring care, requiring your questions to be answered. And, um, you know, nurses um, do not have the time to attend to those needs because, you know, they have more important things to attend to. Um, And so for that reason, I think that's one of probably one of the most important reasons why those complaints essentially escalate into more aggressive behavior. Right. And I think you make an interesting point there as well. It's not as though nurses are doing this, they're going that they're they're not doing their jobs. It's it comes down to heavy workload and trying to get to everybody and trying to do everything. Exactly. They're doing the best that they can with, um, you know, limited resources and staffing shortages and all of those other factors that, um, you know, sort of add to their workload in their work environment. Uh, I'm not sure if the study looked at this, but did it look at whether or not aggression has grown over the years? Not this study, but um, we have some evidence. We have some WorkSafeBC statistics that essentially showed that, you know, uh, from 2005 to 2015, nurses accounted for more than uh, 40% of workplace violence injuries, as opposed to security and law enforcement personnel that accounted for only 14% of those injuries. So these statistics are concerning. And I have to add that we recently uh, completed another um, BC Nurses Union funded study 
um, looking at uh, psychological health and safety in the workplace for nurses. And um, we actually collected some workplace violence data as part of that study. And the statistics are, I must say, uh, very concerning. We're seeing rates as high as, you know, 70 to 80 percent of nurses um, reporting exposure to physical assault and threats of assault and emotional um, abuse in the workplace over the last year. And did it look at the different areas in that I would think maybe a hospital like St. Paul's, which is right downtown, might have a bigger issue with violence than, say, a hospital in the suburbs? Yeah, so for this new study, um, we actually collected um, data at a healthcare facility level. And I mean, we've only done preliminary analysis up to this point. And um, one of the other important variables that we actually looked at in this study is nursing specialty. So we know that some areas in healthcare are certainly more high risk in terms of workplace violence than others. One of these areas, for example, medical surgical settings or um, um, long-term care settings or um, um, uh, geri- uh, sorry, I meant uh, psychiatric facilities and mental health settings. These are the hot zones of workplace violence. That said, uh, I think new research actually shows that um, you know, it's systemic. Um, um, workplace violence is becoming a systemic problem where we're seeing like uh, less and less gaps in uh, uh, prevalence of workplace violence across nursing specialties. I, I just wanted to go back to those numbers you said, too, because I think people will be surprised by that if you're saying that uh, the study shows that nurses account for 40 percent of uh, the workplace place violence, whereas you look at first responders or police officers at 14. Uh, is it because of the level of, of, even though this has been going on for so many years, I'm sure nurses know what's going on and probably anticipate it, but I, I mean, you would expect a police officer might encounter somebody violent on the street. That's the very nature of the job, but you wouldn't expect, uh, at least I wouldn't think so, you wouldn't expect that nurses are uh, professionals who are constantly uh, encountering violence. That's a really good point. Um, But again, because of the um, study that we recently completed looking at um, heavy workloads in nurses' work environments, um, we now know that, you know, heavy workloads is actually a root cause of the problem and that it, um, um, you know, it's essentially when uh, patients do not receive the type of care that they receive, especially when they're in a vulnerable situation, um, you know, when when they complain and nurses do not have the time to meet those needs, um, um, things escalate into workplace violence, unfortunately. Uh, so what is the, is the solution here? The, the obvious uh, that hire more nurses have uh, lessened the workload and that could lead to the solution? Or what else can we take from the study? That's a really good question. So um, I would actually break down the solution into long-term goals versus short-term goals. So I would say the long-term goal is to attend to nurses' workload. We need our policymakers, decision-makers, key stakeholders to think of ways to, um, uh, you know, uh, finally look at those things in nurses' work environments, such as, as you said, staffing shortages and other factors, you know, the number of times nurses are interrupted, the number of times or the, the, uh, the number of times that they for example, have to do overtime, the number of times they miss their breaks. So all of those factors add to nurses' workloads. And we need to be thinking of ways to um, sort of uh, address nurses' workloads. 
But with respect to short term, because, you know, this is something we can't um, definitely answer over time. And so I would say that um, for the short term, you know, we have some workplace violence prevention interventions in place, existing interventions. So I conducted uh, with a couple of colleagues at UBC, I conducted um, a study looking at the impact of workplace violence prevention interventions on nurses' workplace safety perception. So, and that study actually interestingly found that things like when employers listen to their staff's workplace violence prevention suggestions, that makes a really big difference. When nurses do not have to physically intervene, um, uh, you know, when violence happens, that makes a really big difference with respect to their safety. But surprisingly, we found that uh, some of the technology interventions that are available in nurses' uh, work environment to deal with violence, like um, these devices called personal protective devices or um, what we know as uh, essentially personal alarms. So these alarms that n- nurses carry with themselves and trigger when they're in imminent danger to essentially call for assistance and help, these devices do not really make a difference with respect to workplace safety. And so my, uh, I, I think that future research really needs to be looking at the impact of some of these interventions that are already existing. In the meantime, um, uh, when we're trying to answer or accomplish um, 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 uh, nurses' workload in the work environment. All right. Well, very interesting uh, findings. And uh, as you mentioned, mentioned some short-term uh, possible solutions as well. Uh, Farnes, thank you so much uh, for joining us and sharing this with us this morning. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.